If you'll please stand and join me for the reading of God's word, reading Psalm 78, 1 through 22. Another psalm regarding Asaph. It says, Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children, that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children, so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments, and that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, the generations whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. The Ephraimites, armed with the bow, turned back on the day of battle. They did not keep God's covenant, but refused to walk according to his law. They forget his works and the wonders that he had shown them. The word of the Lord. Good morning. I'm Michael. I'm one of the pastors here. I don't get up here too much. Uh, I'm normally the pastor down in, well, I'm normally the pastor everywhere, but I'm regularly in Palos, so it's, it's good to be with you here. It is a little odd because all of these noise-dampening curtains does make the entire sound sound different, doesn't it? But we'll, we'll muddle through anyway. We won't be able to go to the beach, but we have this. We'll always have this. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for this beautiful, beautiful day that you have created. Father, we thank you that we can come together as your people in this building week after week to celebrate your goodness. Father, we pray that you would open our ears and our eyes and our hearts and our minds to receive your word, that we might not only understand it, but apply it to our lives. Father, bless all who are here that they might further their knowledge and understanding of the gospel. In Christ's name, amen. Okay, so because I am a pastor, one thing that is absolutely true about me is that I love to tell stories. If you've ever been in a conversation with me, you know that you will ask me a question that maybe just necessitates a yes or a no answer, and 20 minutes later, you're wondering when I'm going to get around to answering what you've asked because I've told three stories and I'm two stories deep in the most recent story I've told and I'm very excited and occasionally I'll even say to you, how did I get on that? It's because, I mean, I, I, love to tell, I love to tell stories. I love to tell stories specifically about God's goodness in my life. And so maybe you've heard this one. But many years ago, say 12 years ago, almost, almost exactly this time of year, it was late July, my wife and I were, were laying in bed and we were contemplating what was next for us. I'd been, uh, for you know, 15 years, I'd been selling process instrumentation and controls to chemical plants. 
and the company that I worked for had gotten purchased by another, another corporation and the specific sales division that I managed, uh, the guy didn't want it. And so he just closed it and fired me. And he said, so, you know, that's the way that goes. What are you going to do now? Because we have a non-compete with you. And I said, well, you know, I think I'm going to maybe go to seminary. And you could have bowled the guy over, right? Because if you've got a salesman in the room who's, you know, a high-powered sales guy, you don't think the next thing he's going to say is he's going to go to seminary. But my plan to go to seminary worked like this. I was going to move somewhere. Primarily, I was hoping to move to St. Louis. Uh, to work full-time and to just get a master's degree because I couldn't figure out in my mind how I could afford to go to seminary full-time with four kids. I had four kids at this point. I still have four kids. <laughs> but I, I had all four of my children were with me at this time. And there was just no way that I could figure out how can I make this happen. And so my wife and I were laying in bed and she said, you know, uh, after a couple months of looking for work, and I could find nothing. I couldn't even get a second inter I couldn't even get an interview on a job in St. Louis. Nobody would touch me, even though I, I could bring product lines with me. So I thought, for sure, a company is going to want to hire me. <laughs> nothing. And so finally, in late July one night, we were laying in bed, and my wife said to me, you know, what, what's, what's the plan? Like, what, what are we going to do? Like, Look, I don't know. She said, well, if you could do anything, anything at all, what would you do? And I said, oh, that's easy. Let's sell everything and move to Scotland. I want to work in a whiskey distillery, just raking malt. <laughs> True story. And my wife's like, yeah, I'm going to need plan B. So that tells you a little bit about what I'm doing right now. It's plan B. So I said to my wife, well, you know, plan B isn't even, isn't even workable. It would be, you know, to go to seminary full time. And I, she said, well, that's what we should do. Let's, let's move to seminary. Let's go to seminary full time. You'll get a master of divinity, and we'll, you'll become a pastor. And I'm like, OK, so that's a fantasy world because it's late July. School starts in 30 days. I'm not registered for classes. We've not listed our house, shown our house, prepared our house to sell, sold our house, found anywhere to live. We've done zero preparation. So that's not. That's not going to happen. There's no way that happens. And my wife said to me, she said, you know what? I think this is what God wants us to do. So let's pray about it. So we did. We prayed about it. The next morning, my daughter, my oldest daughter, who at the time was eight years old, said, hey, let's have our neighbors over. And we had these neighbors, and they were you know, homeschoolers, and they had some kind of ministry that they did. I didn't ever know. I would always ask him, like, what do you do for a living? He said, ah, I do the Lord's work. I'm like, I don't know what that means. But, you know, we were friends, and like, so our, our properties abutted each other. And so my daughter says, hey, let's have this family over for coffee because, you know, when I talk to them, I always tell them, you know, whatever. And they say, hey, you know, if you ever sold your house, we love your house. So we relented, and about 9 o'clock the very next morning, we had our neighbors over for lunch, or for breakfast, and they said, oh, we're about ready to go to a homeschooling conference in Ohio, but we can stop over for 30 minutes. See how long this story goes? You're like, when is he going to get over with the story? I know where I'm going. So we were sitting around uh, with this family, and uh, we're, we told him our story. And he said, wow, that is amazing. That's an amazing story you've told. 
how about if I just ask you a question, how much do you want to sell your house for when you list it? So at this point, I've not asked anything about them buying it, not a, not a word. I'm just telling them a story like I'm doing right now. And he says, you know, what would you list it for? And I said, oh, you know, I, I picked a number that I thought was reasonable. And he goes, well, I'll tell you what, I'm just going to write you a check right now. Yeah, that happened. I said, I'm, excuse me? He goes, well, when you called this morning, we were gathered around our dining room table and we were praying for a house to be available because we really, really have run out of room in our house and we need a house that's preferably in this neighborhood and, you know, we want to be able to keep our, our older kids in our house and then keep it as a ministry center. We want to move somewhere else. And so when you called and invited us over and then told us a story about how you feel like the Lord's moving you somewhere, we felt like you were answering a prayer that we were praying. And about two months ago, we came into a bunch of money that we didn't know anything about, and now we have it. And so 30 days later, I showed up at Covenant Seminary, having received a scholarship for, so I called them like two days later, and I said, hey, I want to come to seminary, but it's going to be really expensive. And she said, oh, you know, it's really past the registration time. She called me back a few hours later and said, you know, the funniest thing happened. Are you from a small town in Iowa? I said, I am. I grew up in a town of like 3,000 people. She goes, well, this is amazing. We had a guy here who was on a Harvest Sun scholarship, and the requirement for this scholarship is you have to grow up in a small town in the Midwest <laughs> so you can have it. And I looked at my wife, and I'm like, is there anything else the Lord's telling you we're supposed to do? <laughs> because... In 24 hours, we went from nothing to the Lord said, I don't know what plan you're trying to work out, but here was my plan. I'm selling your house for cash, and I got a scholarship waiting for you. I just need you to go do what I told you to do. And that's amazing, isn't it? It's the kind of thing that would make you think that every day in ministry, I would be so excited and so marveling at the work that God had done to get me here that I would never be upset about anything that I would never be frustrated with anybody in this room, that I would never think that I'm a failure or that I should go back to selling instrumentation because it's way easier and better, that I would never wonder if this was really God's plan because I have a history of living his story that's very clear what he's trying to do in my life. And there's others. You've got them too, don't you? And yet, I forget. I forget the story that God's told me. I forget my history. I forget his story of his faithfulness in my life. And when I do that, my hope moves from the place it's supposed to be in him to me. Or maybe I even move to a place where I just have no hope at all. And that's what this psalm is about. This, this is the second largest, longest psalm that we have. And so if you're checking your watches right now going, oh my word, that was a really long story. We haven't even gotten into the meat of it. We're going to be here for two hours. No, we're going to fly right through this. Because it's actually a very simple psalm. What this psalm wants to do is it wants to remind the people of their story. It wants to remind God's people of his faithfulness of the way that he's delivered them, of the way that he's provided for them, of, of the way that he even disciplined them, and the way that he loves them. 
so that they would set their hope in him. Because when we forget our story, our hope ends up in the wrong place. It says in verse 7, it says that the whole point of this is to tell our children so that they would set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. That's the whole point of this psalm, that they would set their hope in God. And so what the psalm sets out to do is to get them to do that by telling a story by telling a story of God's faithfulness, a story of of his deliverance. If you look at it, what you really see in this psalm is that the psalmist kind of repeats himself. So he tells a story at the very beginning of how God delivered the people out of Egypt. And then later he kind of comes back to it and expands it all the way from the plagues and delivering the people that way to bringing them to the edge of the promised land. So you can kind of see it as like part A, short story, and then part B, longer story over the course of this whole thing. But so we have to ask ourselves, like, what did did he deliver them from? Slavery. They were slaves. And that was a bad thing. They were being oppressed. They'd forgotten Joseph. Pharaoh didn't care about him anymore. And so the people were miserable. They were miserable and they needed deliverance. And then the psalmist tells the story later in this later half. He he tells the story of their deliverance. And we get to watch it every year when we see, you know, the Ten Commandments, how this deliverance happens. Plagues, lots of plagues, blood and boils and locusts and frogs. I mean, it was bad, but it was amazing. It was an overwhelming kind of shock and awe that God was doing to Pharaoh, where Pharaoh really, I mean, it says in scripture, Pharaoh was kind of God's personal whipping boy so that he could show his people how powerful he was and the extent to which he would go to deliver them. And it was designed, these, these miracles were designed that the people would marvel at God. Remember the frogs? Remember how the firstborn, all the firstborn children died? Remember how the, the rivers turned to blood? That was amazing. God went out of his way with these miracles to deliver us. And so I ask you, Consider for a moment, how has God delivered you? Just think about that for a second. What has God done to deliver you, and what has he delivered you from? Just think about it. You see, it's not just a story of deliverance. It's a story of provision. So the psalmist goes on in verses 15 and 16. He tells the story of of the provision that happens. If you look at your Bibles, it says, He split the rocks in the wilderness and gave them drink abundantly as from the deep. He made streams come out of the rock and caused the waters to flow down like rivers. Not only did he deliver them, but miraculously... He provided for them. He gave them water. He gave them food. Manna and quail fell from the sky. 
That's amazing. Manna and quail fell out of the sky. That's amazing. The people should have been saying, that's amazing. Manna and quail came out of the sky, and they're all over. It's amazing. They should marvel at that. Then he takes them to this mountain, and he gives them a law, and he tells them, this is who I am, and this is how much I love you, and this is how you should live so that you can have a good relationship with me and with each other. And he gives them this identity, and then it says later that he takes them to this land it says and he brought them to his holy land to the mountain which his right hand had won and he drove out the nations before them and he apportioned for them a possession and settled the tribes of israel in their tents and when in the psalm where this takes place is as they're overlooking the promised land if you depending on how you want to date that but that's where i think what's happening here he said this is all going to be yours food water makes them a, a people, gives them a law, he gives them a land. And don't forget, when they left Egypt, the people were so happy to see them go that they said, hey, wait, before you leave, take all of our gold. Take all of our gold with you. He doesn't just deliver them, but he provides for them. And so now I'm going to ask you to do this. Ask yourself this question. How has God provided for you? When you drive to your homes in Hinsdale or where one of the surrounding communities and you pull up in your driveway, in your car, do you think to yourself, my Lord provided this for me? I have this house and it's amazing. I have this car and it's amazing. And I have these clothes, and it's, it's amazing. I have running water coming out of my faucet that's clean, and I don't, that's amazing. I have a job. That's amazing. Look at what God has provided for me. This is amazing that he has done this. What's God provided for you? And so now comes the tough part, and the psalmist gets this. You would think that we would look at that and say, man, I am going to live the rest of my life every day marveling at the awesomeness of God, being thankful and, and having great gratitude towards him and, and obeying him out of love because of what, how he has delivered me and what he has provided for me. So then you are left with this odd realization that we don't do that at all. And fortunately for us, we're just like the people in the psalm. We can relate to them because they're just like us. And so what happens when we forget the deliverance and the provision? It says in verse 17, yet they sinned. What? How could you sin when you've had all this stuff? says later in verse 56, yet they rebelled. What did that look like? 
it looked this way. In verse 17, it says, Yet they sinned still more against him, rebelling against the Most High in the desert. And they tested God in their hearts, demanding the food they craved. So bread and quail are falling out of the sky, and the people are saying, that's not enough. We could use some more. Actually, it's kind of boring eating the same thing every day. Maybe we get something different. Manna and quail fell out of the sky. This is a miracle of biblical proportions. <laughs> and the people were like, yeah, it's not enough. That's not really enough. That whole thing you did where you like rolled up the sea and then we walked through it and then Pharaoh's army was chasing us and it like collapsed and killed them all. We have gold. That was yesterday. I mean, seriously, like what, what have you even done for us? Could we have some more quail, please? God says, when you go out to gather the manna, I want you to gather enough the day before the Sabbath to last you the Sabbath. There'll be plenty, don't worry. People can't even do that. They're like, oh, we'll just, we'll just take extra. It has to rot. The people are greedy. It says this, they flattered him with their mouths, but lied to him with their tongues. They couldn't even repent the right way. They're like, oh, we're sorry. <laughs> kind of. <laughs> Not really. Moses even says in Exodus 17, after the people are going through all of this rebellion, he goes to God and he says, hey, um, you know how you wanted me to be your person, be your guy? Um, you're not really making me look good enough here. Like, could you try to do more to make me look good? <laughs> I'm sure God was like, I'm sorry. <laughs> what? Did you think this was about you? And Moses was like, yeah, I actually do think it's about me. I mean, I'm leading these people and you're not making me look good. You're not giving them enough stuff. And so they're rebelling against me. And so look at what happens. There's distrust, there's insincerity, there's impatience, there's greed, there's indulgence, there's ingratitude, there's fake repentance, and there's misdirected hope. They're not hoping in the Lord. It even says this. It says in verse 22, that God was angry because they did not believe in God and did not trust in his saving power. They're like, this is just not enough. I'm going to say it again. Manna and quail fell out of the sky. The sea parted in the middle and they ran through it looking. Oh, look. It's an 80-foot wall of water. Oh, look, it's an 80-foot wall of water, and it's dry land in front of me. That's amazing. Yet they sinned, yet they rebelled. And see, when we do this, because we do, don't we? Right? We've all forgotten God's deliverance and provision. And we've all been greedy, insincere in our repentance, We've all demanded more because what we got yesterday wasn't enough. It's this odd world. John Stott says that the more God gives, the less we appreciate it. Wow. But here's the other, kind of the flip side of that. If you think about the people and where they were, so they were in slavery. And you, you know how this goes, right? Eventually, they even say to Moses, why did you even bring us out here? 
It would be better if we went back. It seemed better? Like, did you forget how bad it was? And that's kind of the same way it is with us. We want our lives just a little bit better. Maybe, maybe a, this much better. That would be good. But we don't grasp the gospel. We don't grasp what the gospel is. That the gospel says you can't do it at all by yourself, and so I will do it all for you. We want our lives just a little bit better. We don't understand what it is that God's offering to us. So we get greedy and all of that that follows. And when that happens, when we put our hope in the wrong place, we're telling the wrong story. You see, the story that we're supposed to be telling is a story of God's deliverance and provision. But when we become greedy and impatient and indulgent and have no gratitude and we're insincere and we're prideful, when we live our lives that way, we're telling a story, but we're telling the wrong one. And maybe, parents, you've done this before. You're reading your kids their favorite children's book. And, you know, to test to see if they're listening, you say something like, Jack and Jill went up the hill, and they talked to a big frog up there. And your kids go, that's not the right story. That's not how it goes. And you say, well, Jack and Jill went up the hill, and there was a big volcano. And they say, no, that's not the right story. That's not how the story goes. The story goes this way. And so you're kind of wanting the child to interrupt you and correct you and tell you, no, no, you got to get the story back on track. you got to tell it the right way. And that's what God does. God intervenes in his discipline to kind of get us back on track and to remind us of what the story is and to get us to tell the story the right way again. And so a couple things. Tragedy is not the same as discipline. When a child dies... When people get cancer, when a building falls over on somebody, that's not discipline. That's tragic. We can just say that's tragedy. We don't have to say, oh, who's to blame for this? This is talking about when God disciplines his people for their rebellion, and it's very specific about that. But it's refocusing people on their covenant, and there's phrases in here that make us uneasy. It says, when he killed them, and we look at that and say, wow, that seems a little harsh. They were doing bad things, and then it says, and when God killed them, they repented. Man, I don't like a God like that. How many of you have heard people say that that God of the Old Testament doesn't make any sense? Okay, I've heard it plenty of times. You know why that God of the New Testament doesn't make any sense? Is because people don't understand the holiness of God. That he was with them in their midst, in the tabernacle, and to say that, oh, that doesn't make any sense, that God would take people out, is to have a very low view of the holiness of God and the magnitude of our sin. That's why it doesn't make sense. It says he forsook his dwelling place, that 
you know, in, in the story of the Bible, there's this great movie, you know, it's, well, it's not in the Bible, but Raiders of the Lost Ark, you know this film. The Ark gets stolen. And it gets stolen because the people were lazy and they weren't doing what they were supposed to be doing and it gets stolen and it goes off and everything just seems to kind of be unraveling and this whole psalm ends. It talks about the rejection of Ephraim and the choosing of jo Judah. And here's what you're supposed to understand out of that. That this psalm is telling a story. And the story it's telling is that once upon a time, there was the tribe of Ephraim which in much of the Old Testament is kind of used to mean all of Israel, but also kind of specifically used for the New Testament. And if you read through the Exodus and through Joshua and Judges and First and Second Samuel, you'll see the many, many failures of the tribe of Israel. They don't want to fight. They don't want to do what they're supposed to do. Eli, it's just, it's a mess. They lose the ark, and God says, I'm done with you. I'm done with the tribe of Ephraim. I'm going to go with the tribe of Judah now. And so you have to, this is a big deal for them. I'm going to go with this. This is, this is all part of the discipline, all part of the judgment. So now I want to ask you this question. When has God disciplined you? Oh, that's not a fun story, is it? When has the Lord disciplined you? When you think about that, think about this. When the Lord disciplined Israel, they were supposed to say, Oh my word, fire just consumed the edges of our camp. The ground opened up and swallowed people. That's bad. That's amazing. I marvel at that. And so I ask you this question. Not only how has God disciplined you, but do you marvel at it? Do you marvel at the extent to which God has gone to get you back on track and to tell the story the right way? Because that's what he wants. That's why discipline comes into your life to get you to tell the story the right way again. But here's the beauty. It's not just a story of his deliverance or his provision or his discipline. It's really a story of his love. In verses 34 through 39, you see this. You see it again in verses 65 through 72. That even in the midst of this discipline, right, there's been the deliverance. There's been the provision. There's been this discipline as the people have forgotten. But the way God works with his people is he always comes back around to the fact that he loves them. And so it says in verse 38, because he was compassionate, he atoned for their iniquity and he did not destroy them. He could have, but he didn't. Because of his compassion, he atoned for their iniquity and he did not destroy them. And then you read these verses at the end. He chose David his servant and took him from the sheepfolds from following the nursing ewes, he brought him to shepherd Jacob, his people, and Israel, his inheritance. With an upright heart, he shepherded them and guided them with his skillful hands. So remember that what this psalm has been telling you the story of is Ephraim didn't do what they were supposed to do. Jacob didn't do what it was supposed to do. Israel didn't do what it was supposed to do. So they got disciplined, and eventually he said, I'm going to no longer have my 
primary person be the tribe of Ephraim, I'm switching to Judah, and it seems like there's this complete and total rejection. But look what's happened. Don't miss this. That what he says is, I'm going to appoint Judah and David to shepherd Ephraim and Israel. I mean, even in the midst of discipline, God is still seeking to shepherd them and to love them and to care for them and to teach them, even though their position has gone away now. Think about how this ends. They go into the promised land and everything's amazing. Everything just works out forever because they remembered this psalm and they sang it every week and everything was great. Or not. This is the story that we tell. And so this is my encouragement for us, is that we would embrace this idea of telling our stories, telling our stories to our children of deliverance and provision and discipline and love because this is what the psalm says. If we do this for our children, it will go well for them. It will go well for God's people. And if you're in this room and you have children, you have the biggest fear you have, let's just be honest, parents. What's the biggest fear you have with your children? That they won't grow up and follow the Lord. That's your biggest fear. There's no fear greater than that. And there's no guarantees that you'll do everything that you're supposed to do and it will turn out well. There's no guarantees. But... We have to be willing to tell our children the stories of our deliverance. Remember, I asked you to think about how has the Lord delivered you? Tell it to your children. Tell it to your neighbor. How has the Lord provided for you? Tell it to your children. Tell it to your neighbor. How has the Lord disciplined you? This is probably the most important one. Rather than just meeting out discipline on your children, tell them how the Lord has disciplined you to get them to get you to tell the story the right way again. How has the Lord loved you? Tell that story. It's been a horrible week, right? People have been getting shot. It's been bad. There's no quick fix. But I wonder how much better it might be if God's people were telling this story, the story of our deliverance and our provision and our discipline and our love, and we saw ourselves rightly patient and humble, content, filled with gratitude and hope, how might that change the way we interact with one another in this world? How might telling our stories lead, lead us to putting our hope in the right place? Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your story, the story that is all about your love for us and your redemption of us. Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, who was the rock in the wilderness. Father, we pray that we would be reminded constantly of your love for us. In Jesus' name, amen. In your bulletins, we have a confession of sin. Just like this psalm does, it tells us the story of our need to repent, of the ways in which we have forgotten to put our trust in God and believe in his deeds.
And so let's confess together. You'll follow along in the bowl. Heavenly Father, we confess that we are a forgetful people. Again and again, you have shown your faithfulness to us. You have given us your Son, redeeming us from sin and death. By your Spirit, you protect us from evil and reassure us of your love. We are blessed far more than we will ever know. Yet in times of difficulty, we often fail to believe in you. And in times of prosperity, we turn away from you, seeking joy elsewhere. You are faithful, but we are unfaithful. Please forgive us for not giving you the trust you deserve. Let's confess silently. Father, renew us by your Holy Spirit that we might be a people who trust you and love you with our entire being. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Hear this good news from Lamentations. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Hear the good news, even as we are forgetful and even when our faith is weak, God remains faithful. He has shown his unending steadfast love through Jesus, redeeming us from our sins. Thanks, Thanks be to God. God.